Today I'm joined by Professor Saskia Sassen, an eminent sociologist noted for her analyses of globalisation and international human migration. She is currently Robert S. Lynn Professor of Sociology at Columbia University, Co-Chair Committee on Global Thought and Centennial Visiting Professor at the London School of Economics. Professor Sassen grew up in Buenos Aires but has lived and studied in Italy, France, Rome and also in America. From 1969 onwards, Professor Sassen studied sociology and economics at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana, where she obtained an MA in 1971 and a PhD in 1974. She also obtained a French master's degree in philosophy in Poitiers in 1974. After being a postdoctoral fellow at the Centre for International Affairs at Harvard University, Professor Sassen held various academic positions both in and outside of the USA, including the Ralph Lewis Professor of Sociology at the University of Chicago. During the 1980s and 1990s, she emerged as a prolific author in urban sociology and her books have been translated into 21 languages. She has studied the impacts of globalisation and how the movements of labour and capital influence urban life. She has also studied the influence of communication technology on governance and observed how nation states begin to lose power to control these developments. She identified and described the phenomenon of the global city and her 1991 book of the same name, quickly made her a frequently quoted author on globalisation discussions taking place worldwide. Today, Professor Sasson receives a Doctor of Laws from the University of Warwick. A very warm welcome to the University of Warwick, Professor Sasson, and congratulations on your honorary degree. Can you tell us what this award means to you? Well, what it means above all is a continuation of rituals and traditions in a university. Think of the university as an institution that is collectively produced it needs rituals, you know, including those hundreds of students who march and shake. All of that helps to sort of make, make the university real, to give it also a further life, you know. So it means above all that to me. Secondly, it means that I become part of that university, and I like to say that, you know. I'm now part of people that they can call on. You've had a truly global education. Can you tell us a little bit about how these experiences have shaped your work over the years? I am asked that question often. And to me, it seems that I could have been doing what I do, even if I would have been born in a small little town somewhere and would have perhaps wound up then at a university in a big city. I just think that there are questions that go beyond one's biography. That is a bit how I would put it. But I get the question asked so often that perhaps people are right. I just don't feel it. You know, I just feel that these are very substantive issues that deserve our attention, you know. And so the fact that my biography happens to be that I grew up in five languages and all of that, and I don't know in how many countries, but I don't notice it, I confess. Can you introduce us to the idea of the global city? When I was doing a certain type of research way back in the 1980s, when the notion of globalization was just appearing, and the usual language was, you know, placelessness, place no longer matters, we have digital technology, we have these very powerful firms that can buy whatever technology they have. And so sort of my, my question was, okay, fine, but... Does this stuff, this global stuff, ever hit the ground? And what happens then? And I thought that, in a way, the more interesting part could be that hitting 
the ground because the ground is always going to be different. It's going to be different in a city than it is in a rural area. It's going to be different in Latin America from what it is in North America, different in Asia. So I decided that that was going to become my place for doing research. And so out of that then comes this notion of the global city. But I must say, I was not an urbanist, and in many ways I'm still not. I just think that in this particular period, a period that has now lasted for more than 20 years, the city, the big city, and the global city in the end, is a kind of space where you can study a lot of the current period and understand it in a material, empirical way. A lot of non-urban stuff, say finance. High finance is not urban per se, but it has an urban moment. And in that urban moment, it becomes real. It's no longer simply electronic networks. It's actually the buildings of financial firms. It's the people who do the trading. It's where they live. It's how they affect the city. So that was a bit my notion. My notion is that the global city, which right now is a space that involves about 100 cities worldwide, is a kind of space where a lot of the global that may be digital or, and so private that you can't access it, suddenly it becomes empirical, concrete, and you can actually study it. It's in your face. <laughs> so gentrification, you know, the, the growth in the numbers of homeless people, all of that were consequences of the urban footprint of very powerful firms, very powerful global markets. And so in, in that sense, the city really allows you to understand something and see something that otherwise remains pretty invisible. And so in that sense, and out of that comes this notion of the global city. So I first made a discovery of what I like to think of as a kind of systematicity, huh? a systemic side. And out of that, then I called that the global city. People often say, I coined the term the global city. Yes, I did, but the main point here is I discovered an empirical condition and then I gave it a name. Talking about the term globalization, it's a word that is used frequently, but we were wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what you really think the word means today. Right, but that's a very good way of putting the question because the global is a mutant. In many ways, we have had globalities forever. Organized religions, the Catholic Church has been pretty global <laughs> for a very long time. So my, my project has been to capture the particularity of this global face. You know, in other words, we had a very internationalized economy in the late 1800s. But, you know, it was very different from the current one. So I think that today, what is quite important to notice is that it is not simply a function of imperial geographies of powerful states. You know, in the past it often was, kind of, or, or with the Catholic Church for that matter, a kind of an imperial geography that was an operational space that went way beyond the British Empire, you know, the Spanish Empire. Today what you have is a multi-sided you know, in other words, it's happening in many different places. And it is an articulation with global processes that want to maximize very often the number of countries, the number of places where they are operating. And people often think that, well, this is just more imperial. It is imperial in many ways. In many, not always. But it is different. 
And I say not in all ways because I think that global, poor global civil society organizations, for instance, have also gone global. And it helps them. And I think that, for instance, if you take an entity like Amnesty International, right, who does work on human rights, or you take Oxfam on development, you know, these organizations have become very significant, but I think they're partly so significant because they are present in hundreds and hundreds of places where you have people, activists, you know, who are not cosmopolitan, not mobile. But they are the ones like, you know, if people are who are obsessed, for instance, with a local prison where you have a torturer of prisoners, and that's what they want to expose. Or the environmental activists, there is a factory polluting the water in my community. And they are often really not cosmopolitan, and I think that's their strength. And they are immobile. They're not about to travel, but they are connected with a very international organization. And... Whereas all the attention goes to the big international organization, I say, what would Amnesty International be without the thousands of very localized, very immobile people who are really doing hardcore work on the ground, um, and similarly with so many others? And so I think, to me, that is part of globalization today. Now, the other feature that matters to me is I argue that the national state is actually a key actor, especially the executive branch of government, whether it is the prime ministerial kind of executive or whether it is a president. And I think that has gone underneath the radar screen. I think most people think that the state has become weaker, which is true, but not the executive branch of government. That has gained power. Could you tell us whether it would be feasible for such a thing as a global university to exist? Well, yes and no. You know, in many ways, our universities are already global. But the notion of a global university that floats above it all, that has no roots, that is not shaped by the particular versions of a global condition, I don't think that that would be a good idea. I think that we need to combine these two dimensions. One is a global sort of perspective, a global project, a global constituency, in other words, the students and the professors come from all over the world, but at the same time, a particular angle. I am one of those, and probably in a minority, who thinks that the global takes many different manifestations. It gets partly filtered through the specifics of place. So it is different in London than it is in Birmingham. It's different in Birmingham from what it is in Detroit, etc., etc. And I think a university has its own more complex versions of that the, the particularity of place, place in a very complex sense. Clearly, the university combines very abstract forms of knowledge that are not place-specific. But ultimately, it's also about the people, not just about abstract systems of knowledge. And when it comes uh, to the people, the fact that, for instance, here at Warwick, you have a lot of foreign students that is amazing. That is fantastic. They will inevitably take with them, if they go back home, some perspective that has to do with having studied at Warwick, which is different from what would it have if it would have been at the London School of Economics, etc., etc. So I think that even though a lot of knowledge is abstract and placeless, uh, mathematics, etc., I think that the people who are the carriers, even of those abstract knowledges, uh, take with them a kind of experience that might shape their most creative work, for instance. So the notion of a global university that is not marked by any locality is not even desirable, I think.
So our final question today is, which one piece of advice would you give to your fellow graduates with you at the University of Warwick today? Well, what I said when I spoke, which is that having been part of a great university is a marking experience. They take it with them. They should not forget it. They should feel that Warwick University and its people, including its honorandi like me, that we are part of their large network. And I think they should not feel that now they have left their university, Warwick, behind. No, they should feel that they can call on us. They should organize alumni organizations, you know. But really make that university part of your future life. It's sort of a very large network. And I insist always, include all of those who have gotten honors and accepted them and call on them as well. Besides all the usual things, you know, have a great life, get a great job, do what you really believe in. But just to be more a bit more specific, let me add that. That's wonderful. Professor Sasson, thank you so much for joining us.